Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. As we spoke about um, in the last time I preached two weeks ago, we had Easter in between there. We had an incredible Easter camp. We're going to give you some feedback probably next week or the week after that around that student camp. was just amazing. And then we had um, a time with the Baptist church on Easter Sunday. We were with the Baptists, which was fantastic, so I'm told. I was still out on the, um, on the, in Sutherland in the freezing cold. In the back of a truck we were bringing in Easter Sunday with the sunrise. It was beautiful. But there's so many cool things going on, right? Combined prayer, God stirring unity among the hearts of different, uh, different congregations in our town. It's so beautiful. I want to encourage you guys, that time on Tuesday night is a unique moment. I've been here five years. Not once have I seen the church gathered in a meaningful way. Guys are saying we want to come. We want to be part of it. We're trying to reach out as far and wide as we can to all different areas of Stellenbosch for guys to come. I'm not sure who's going to come yet, but it's going to be amazing to be together and to pray. All right, are you turning to Nehemiah 1? Straight off to Ezra where we've been for quite a while. This morning, and actually for the next few weeks, I want to look at lessons out of the life of Nehemiah around calling. This big Christian word which sometimes scares us, sometimes is very misunderstood. And so I just want to systematically and as thoughtfully as I can look at at the life of Nehemiah and go through this issue of Christian calling. How does how does God call us? And this morning I want to speak particularly around holy discontent around holy discontent, and we're going to get there now. I'm going to lay a little bit of a foundation for us. Scripture makes it abundantly clear, and I want an amen after the end of this, that no works can earn salvation. Amen? Amen. No works. Thank you, Jesus, should be our heart's cry every time we hear that refrain, that our works cannot achieve salvation because God knows that we can't get there. In the same breath, Each and every one of us who has received this free gift of salvation is called to work for God in His kingdom. This is how Ephesians 2 says it. One of my favorite texts, Ephesians 2. What we looked like before, what we look like, what we're growing to look like now. And we should memorize this verse, Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It can't be clearer. Salvation, free gift, it's yours. You can't earn it. But then immediately, the author immediately carries on to say in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is so thoughtful around what He wants us to do for Him that He prepared it even beforehand. He's thinking, He's planning, He's purposing. Do you know that the way that you were created, the things you like, the things your, your body enjoys, so maybe you like a hot climate or you prefer a cold climate like we have here this morning in the absence of our heaters. Thank you, Jesus, that you're enough. Right? Warm those hands up. But God, down to the finer details of who we are and how He's created us, has purposed us. Has purposed you. Think about that. When you you think about your calling and you're waiting for some grand bolt of lightning, it's a great place to start just asking, what has God gifted me at? What am I good at? What do I enjoy? Sanctified enjoyment. 
is we, I think we, we get really tempted to, to, to think about the salvation aspect of our faith all the time. We think so much about the salvation and the free gift of salvation, which is incredible. You can't overstate how wonderful this gift is. But there's this other side of the coin where as we saved, God says, yes, now I've saved you for. Now we begin saved for good works. And the gospel changes our lives, but it changes it in such a way that's evident to everybody around us. In fact, James goes as far as to say in his epistle that if it's not evident, that the faith was not real. If the faith does not lead to some kind of evidence in our lives of of spirit-filled growth and spirit-enabled growth, it means that actually the faith wasn't real in the first place. He says, show me your faith without works, is his challenge to the people that he's writing to. See, I think sometimes we imagine that this calling idea is Mother Teresa. It's out there. It's for the few select, super spiritual. They, they receive some kind of special calling from God. And well, for the rest of us, well, we just got to kind of plod through our lives and hope for a happy death at the end. You know, it's, it's Francois and Roline in Indonesia, guys that we planted out there. They're the ones who are, who are really called. Or maybe you think, well, maybe it's the pastor. Maybe he's the one. Or it's my life group leader. But it's definitely not me. I'm not called to, to anything. And yet, Scripture teaches us again and again and again, if we would just read it, that the normative expectation of the Christian life is that we would work in the kingdom of God. The normal expectation is not some unusual demand on certain people. I mean, do we get that? Do we get that? Do we really get that? That the whole body, each part working, like I like to think of it like a train, faith works. Can you hear it? Like the rhythm, faith works, faith works. Or you can think about it like, a, like an ocean wave and our faith washes in and our works wash out and it's, it's this continuing symbiotic relationship. And so here's where we're going to get to this morning, but how? how? Paul, how do we work? How do we called to do, called to do what? Do we wait for some special divine calling, a plane across the sky? Paul, you should do this. And God in His grace sometimes gives us some of those moments. He does. We sang that song this morning. I get emotional every time I sing that ocean song. It was a song that God profoundly used to speak to us when we were struggling with coming into this context. We didn't know you guys. Five years ago when we came here, almost five years ago, we we knew a few couples. We'd visited a few times and through the circumstances around Pete's stroke and the suddenness of that, they asked us to come and lead. And we struggled to, to say yes. Our kids were in school. We lived next door to some of our best friends. We had an offer in on our house. It was all just like we had planned it. And then we sang that song in one moment and we'd been asked and I was just wrestling with God and I just felt such peace. So God in His grace does give us some of those moments, but we cannot live waiting for a moment that we think is like a silver bullet, that it's suddenly going to eradicate all the apathy that we feel in our hearts. We can't live waiting for some moment that suddenly the doubts that we feel around God, we're never going to feel again, that it somehow thrusts us into this new you, your best you now, as some of the church preachers would like to have you believe 
You're not going to have a moment that suddenly and eternally makes you passionate for God's kingdom where you gladly sacrifice all your wealth and all your time and all your energy for the purposes and plans of God. You're not going to have a moment, but we think like that, right? Just, just, where's the silver bullet? Where's the, where's the pill I need to swallow with my water and then I'm going to believe this, think this, live like this? All right, let's get into the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, Chislev, which is November, December-ish. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there, we're familiar with this word remnant already, the small group of Israelites who've returned and who are living there in Judah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So if you're new with us, let me catch you up in the quickest way. This is what's going on. decades of years earlier, we'll speak about that in a minute, there was this man, Zerubbabel. And before Zerubbabel, there was this man, Jeremiah. And we've been speaking about all these guys. And Jeremiah was a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said, if you don't stop doing these things, worshiping other gods and not looking after the poor, a socially unjust group of people, God is going to take you into captivity. That was fulfilled. Babylon came took them into captivity. They were in captivity for many years, and then the exile started to return as Jeremiah had prophesied. Remember that beautiful section in the hope, chapter 30 to 33 of Jeremiah, where he begins to prophesy, even though God's going to do this, he's going to bring restoration. Now guys, here's the, here's the crazy thing. As we read Nehemiah chapter 1, What we don't realize, unless you go and look carefully at the time date stamps on it, it's 97 years since Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. So we just read the nine chapters of Ezra, and it takes us about half an hour, and we think it's just kind of this continuing story, and it's all happening concurrently within maybe two or three years. It's 97 years since Ezra chapter 1. It's 71 years, remember we spoke about the temple that they built, and then there was this agony in their hearts that the fire of God didn't fall in the same way that it didn't in Solomon's temple. 71 years since that in Ezra chapter 6. And then when we spoke about racism, and we spoke about the divorce decree, and how they sent these women away, it's been 13 or 14 years since then. So there's been these, these two waves of exiles that have gone through. And here's, here's the point, nothing has gone to plan. We've been speaking the whole way through the series about how there was such anticipation in their hearts. There was such hope that finally they were going back to Israel and God was going to do this and God was going to do this and it's going to be incredible. And each time there's like this anticlimactic moment as Zerubbabel builds the temple, but he refuses to let the other people be involved. And at the other time, the same, the prophets, contemporary prophets are saying, all nations will come and worship. And Zerubbabel's like, no, you won't. You're out. We're in. We're the only guys. And there's these constant anticlimaxes through the story. See, the book, of, the book of Nehemiah speaks to the pain of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if, if you 
know about Scripture and you know about their history, even to this day, there's so much more than it's not like just saying Joburg. Jerusalem is identity for the Jewish nation. It's it's part of who they are. It's their promise. It's, their, it's their, their physical beacon of saying, this is what God promised. And so Jerusalem is so prominent in their minds and in their thoughts. And this book is about the pain of Jerusalem. And the report comes back to Nehemiah that after 97 or 94 years, all the hope, all the anticipation all the remnants who've gone back and the people who've gone back and the leaders who've tried to help them. The report comes back. The remnant there is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. You know, often you go and pick up a book on Nehemiah or you hear a sermon series on Nehemiah and it's rah-rah. It's Let's build the wall. Let's do a building offering. Let's take up money for a building. We're building the walls like Nehemiah. And I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong, but they're not actually exegetically correct. If you look at Scripture, this is actually a story of a failed revival. If you read to the end of the book of Nehemiah, and he's pulling people's hair out, and he's beating on them, literally, he's beating on them, because he's saying, you know, we've built the temple, but the temple's been left, and it's now in, in ruins. We, we brought the Torah, and we taught you laws, but now you're not even, not even keeping the most basic of the laws. You don't even keep the Sabbath anymore. And even the walls, which we haven't got to yet, but the walls that we've rebuilt, you set up stalls on the Sabbath, and you use it like a shopping center, and he's cupping oaks. And it shows us again and again that the best leaders with the best intentions can bring their best into the situation. And without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, it's a failed revival. You can't preach this book accurately. Let's be Nehemiahs and do like him and everything. There's aspects we're going to learn from, absolutely. But it's not that. This book speaks to the pain of Jerusalem. And as I've been preparing, I've been wondering just maybe, just maybe the Lord wants to use this book to speak to the pain of our country. Maybe God wants to use this book to speak to the pain of Stellenbosch, to what's going on right around us. Wouldn't it be wonderful to pray just in our own personal space to start to pray that God would use this book to speak about some of the Pain and injustice that we see everywhere around us every day. You can't take a step in Stellenbosch without being accosted with racial brokenness. You can't take a step without seeing emotional brokenness and divorce and and all sorts of brokenness between relationships with people. You can't take a step without seeing health inequality and brokenness of our health system and education system. You can't take a step without seeing the massive economic divide. And just like Jerusalem is a city broken down and in pain, I wonder if our walls around Stellenbosch are not broken down. And anything and anyone can enter is the kind of image there. Man, I I believe that's exactly what God wants to do through this series. And I'm just going to pause for a minute. And I want you in your hearts right now, in your minds, I want you to ask this question, where do I see brokenness around me? Let me prompt it with a few things. What makes you angry? When you see it, what makes you go, oh, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be. What makes you sad? What makes you weep? What makes you desperate? 
We think that, that, thing, that thing's got to change, but I have no idea how to change it. What, what are the areas, as Nehemiah says, are in great trouble and shame? Where are the broken walls and the gates destroyed? So just for a minute, just think about that in your own mind. Father, this morning as we approach this book, would you speak to us, Lord? Even as we sang that song, Spirit, lead us. My trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you may call me. Take me deeper, Lord, than my feet could ever wander. And my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Lord, as we read about this man's life some thousands of years ago, would you shout through the pages, even to us, your word is living, it's active, it works. It's not just information, it's not just theoretical learning, it works in the praxis, in the practice of, of our lives in changing us, in transforming the way we live, the careers we are committed to, the, the way we do our family, the country we live in. It it's, can completely change all of these things. So I believe that God is going to use this book to stir our hearts about how we can bring godly change, health and wholeness, restoration and healing. What does reconciliation look like in our land? Have you ever stopped and just really thought, what does it look like? God wants to use us into our neighborhoods, into our town, into our own lives, into our family and friends' lives, into your workplace. No more sacred secular divide. Hands up on a Sunday, worshiping God, and hands down in the boardroom. We lift our hands in the boardroom because we lift them on a Sunday. We say, God's given me wisdom to lead in a business marketplace environment. Hands up in our schools. Hands up in our campuses. Anyway, let's read what happens. Nehemiah 1 verse 4. As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eye open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. I just love that little verse, how he owns the sin of the nation of Israel. Some of us sitting here this morning, myself included, so often I've thought, well, I'm not part of apartheid. 
I was never there. I didn't do that. I didn't do this. And yet here, Nehemiah, we can get to this in some weeks' time, but how he so beautifully says, God, I'm part of this nation. I'm part of this sin. I, I want to be part of the solution, God. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, so this was a prophecy of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And God will bring this nation, these Jewish people, back from where they've been scattered like chaff on the wind. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So I've spoken very briefly about how I believe it speaks to the pain of Jerusalem. And I think it speaks as well to the call of Nehemiah. See, on this day, everything changed for Nehemiah. I don't think it was just a specific one moment only. I think his life had been building up to this. But we don't get that context. But what we see is that on one day, he hears these words. And as he hears them, he sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days. And he continued fasting and praying. And then, so it starts there, but then it gets at the end of this chapter we just read, it gets to here. And he says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, what is he praying for? What's the success that Nehemiah is after? What's the mercy that he needs? He ends off this prayer with this, this phrase that he's going to go and he's going to request something. That he needs success and mercy in from this man. Well, the next verse interprets who this man is. It's the king. It's the, the Persian king that he has to go and, and speak to. Now, this gives us this, this incredible window into Nehemiah's life. Do you know that Nehemiah has the perfect Stellenbosch career? Think about what he does. He's cupbearer to the king. He's living in the palace. He has a good life. He's been there, his family have been there, his grandparents have been there for nearly a hundred years. He's established. He's a young, high-flying official. He's cupbearer to the king. This is what he gets to do every day. People bring him the best wines in the whole country, in fact, from all the countries around him, because they're ruling a huge area. And he goes, oh, I think the king will like this one. I think the king will like this one. Can I have an amen? <laughs> what a great job. And he's got to make sure that none of the wine is poisoned. Right? That's not so great. So it's a great job while it's going well, but a very short career path if it's going badly. But it's this beautiful job. But then more than that, historically, a cupbearer was so much more than just the guy who sipped the wine. He was a confidant of the king. Think about it. The king's life is in his hands. He's trusted daily with the life of the most powerful official in the world. Often they would rule an area, a be an official over a, a section of the king's kingdom. And they had this influence and this power. 
Now, when I was reading that, I had this, this, this hyperlink, right? Remember right in the beginning, we were speaking about hyperlinks and how they jump back. And we, we read a part of Scripture which reminds us of another part. And we go and look at that. Think about this, right? There's this, does this remind you of anybody else? We've got a foreign land. We've got someone who's been taken there forcibly in exile, an Israelite man who was taken into captivity, and yet he rises up to position of cupbearer to the king, official in the kingdom. Any, any bells? Anybody? Come on, you can say it. There we go. Joseph. Isn't it incredible how God is able to provide for and position his people in the most ridiculous ways? How did this little Israelite boy grow up as a captive in this land and end up as cupbearer to the king? We're going to speak about that, God's providence and purposes. We're going to speak about that in some of the weeks to come. But what you need to know about Nehemiah is that he's born here. He's lived here. His parents lived here. Do you remember that Jeremiah? Did I say Jeremiah or Nehemiah? Just now I said Nehemiah. Now Jeremiah prophesied when you get taken into Babylon... Make homes, live in peace with the people, build gardens, seek the prosperity of the city. And they did that. These guys have lived there. They're happy there. They've built there. Here's another crazy thought. It's more than likely that Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. It's a four-month journey away. It's more than likely that he's never been there. And then it really struck me that none of the news is new. None of what they bring back is new news. 94 years ago, they knew this. And they sent a wave of exiles. And the reports would have been coming back. We're facing opposition. This is what's going on. The walls are broken down. We're trying to rebuild the temple. And then Ezra goes and Ezra tries to bring the Torah. And all these reports would have been coming back. But none of it is new. All of this news. And so when you read the text the first time, you think, wow, this is amazing. But when you read it and think about it a little bit, it's like, why do you have this crazy reaction? What's going on, Nehemiah, that you, that you sit down and you fast and you pray and you weep for days? Who's wept for days? I certainly haven't. See, this time, when he hears what he's heard before, he's heard it all before, but something breaks. Something unusual. He's unusually moved in his heart. And everyone else around him carries on as normal. They've also heard the news hundreds of times before. Each traveling group that comes through, how's it going in Jerusalem? How's it going in Jerusalem? They've heard it, they've heard it, they've heard it. But Nehemiah has, the only way I can explain this is a Popeye moment. Do you remember Popeye? Do you remember the cartoon Popeye? And who's this girl? Who's Popeye's girl? Olive, right? And who's the guy that's constantly trying to take Olive away from him? Do you remember that, the big guy that's always trying to take Olive and he comes on his boat and whatnot? Bluto. Do you remember Bluto? So there's Olive and there's Popeye and there's Bluto. And then Popeye has this incredible uh, line and it goes through all the different series of Popeye. He says, he reaches a point and he goes, that's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. Do you remember that? That's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. It's Popeye's line. And this is not just normal discontentment for Popeye. This is, you're trying to take my girl. I can take it this far and then I can't go anymore. I can't take it. I can't stand it no more. 
You see, there's the normal discontentment which we all experience. A normal discontentment is going to Gerard and Nicolette's house. We went there for dinner recently. And everything has a place. The chess pieces are all on the chessboard. The, and in my house, I've got five children. That's a discontentment for me. I go into their home and I look at everything and I'm like, the TV remote is close to the TV. There's no socks when you open the thing to look for like, I don't know, like your plates. You know, and there's like socks or something in there. And you, you can never find the things you need. And I know it's like a seasonal thing, right? It's just a season in our lives. But parents, you will know. It's like testify. <laughs> testify. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. And you go to someone else's house and you're like, oh, Jesus, just for a week. Right? That's just normal discontentment. Or as winter comes along, maybe you're a bike, you know, you ride to varsity or you're riding your skateboard or you're riding your bike and one of your friends just got given a 21st present from their parents and it was a car because they spoiled, right? And you're riding and it starts to rain and you're like, oh God, I know I'd look so good in that car. That car was made for me. It was like the designer had me in mind. That's just ordinary Everyday garden variety discontentment. We all experience it in lots and lots and lots of ways. But a holy discontent is different. A holy discontent is something that lives in our hearts primarily because it lives in God's heart. That's what a holy discontent is. It grieves God and because it grieves God, it begins to grieve us. And that's when we end up with this Nehemiah Popeye moment. I can't stand it no more. I can't take it anymore. God, something has to be done. And on this day for Nehemiah, this is what happens. We see in chapter 2, as you keep reading, and man, I want to encourage you to read with us as we're going through the series. Spend your devotions in Nehemiah. It's beautiful. But we see in chapter 2 that he's very afraid to speak to the king, but he, he asks the king to go back. To where? To Jerusalem, the city that's in shame, the city that's in great trouble, the city whose walls are broken down. Just, just put yourselves in this verse for a moment, in this chapter, and think about it. He's got a cushy job. He's got power. He's probably got huge respect from the other Israelite people around him. Broken down ruins, a city in great trouble, a city in great shame. I bet you I would have been appealing to, Lord, no one else cares. They all heard the news. No one else is getting ready to go and see the king about going down there. Why should I go down there, God? No one else cares. <laughs> and Nehemiah is like, I think I'll get back there, please. I think I'll go back there, please. See, God's holy discontent has taken heart of him. It grieves God's heart, and so it grieves Nehemiah's heart. And so then, let me ask you this morning, what about you? What about me? What is it that you thought about just now when I, when I paused and I asked you to think about something that makes you desperate, that makes you sad, that makes you angry, that you think, God, this shouldn't be? Maybe. Maybe the fact that God's placing that discontentment, that holy discontentment in your heart means that He's equipped you to help that thing. Crazy thought, right? Crazy wild jump. Maybe God made you for 
this moment for this thing? What gets you so worked up that you know it's just not a just you feeling? What is it that so stirs our hearts that we know it's not just us, that God's actually doing something, it's bubbling inside of us? What grieves us? What can we not just stand by and watch? And here's the crazy thing. Sometimes it's something that we've walked past a thousand times. We've heard it said a thousand times, but there comes a day where God in His sovereignty hits us right on the chest and we know that it's God speaking to us and He puts this discontent I mean, when we think about South Africa, there are so many issues that are grieving God. Surely He must be grieving our hearts for these things. There's this great old, I'm sure he's dead already, commentator, McLaren, who says it like this, God prepares... His servants for their work by laying on their souls a sorrowful realization of the miseries which other men regard and they themselves have often regarded very lightly. The men who have been raised up to do great work for God and men have always to begin by greatly and sadly feeling the weight of the sins and sorrows which they are destined to remove. Then I love this little line. No man will do Worthy work at rebuilding the walls who has not wept over the ruins. No man will do worthy work at rebuilding the walls who has not wept over the ruins. Our desire when we see something and we want to fix it, it's not strong enough. It's not strong enough to sustain us to the end. There's another man, and you all heard of the Salvation Army, but when the Salvation Army started by a man called William Booth, it was one of the most incredible movements on earth. You can go and read about the founding of that movement. William Booth believed that God had called them to go after the broken of the broken, the poor of the poor. The more broken they were, the more they were in the gutter, the more they felt that God had called them to rescue those people. They said, we'll take anyone, but we really want the outliers. We want those who are broken and destitute in the gutter. This was where it founded. And so he raised up evangelists all over, hundreds and hundreds of evangelists, men and women, going out on their own into pubs and into these different places, and they would cry out this, the gospel, and many, many thousands and thousands of people were saved. But there's a story told about William Booth that one day, one of the young men came to him and said, I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this, and nothing works. They aren't listening. No one is coming to Christ, and I'm pouring out my best effort, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm trying my hardest, but no one is coming to Christ. And William Booth turned to him and said, have you tried weeping? Have you tried weeping? Man, that just hit me when I read that a few weeks ago. I just thought that was so profound. Have we gone before God and said, Lord, what grieves your heart and what do you want me to do? I think we're scared of this question because it's got big implications, right? So we're going to speak in weeks to come about God's providential provision. We're going to speak about how when God calls us, He equips us. How when God calls us, He supports us. We're going to speak about these things because I know it's scary. 
I know it's scary, but if you think about other people in Scripture, we think about people who experience this kind of Popeye moment firsthand. Think about the beautiful Queen Esther. And there's this discontent in her heart because her nation's going to be eradicated. Her nation's going to be thrown out. And the Bible says, she says, or Mordecai, or contrary who, which one says, for such a time as this, perhaps you were called for such a time as this. And she puts her life on the line. And she goes to the king when she wasn't allowed to go to him. And he spares her life. Why did she do that? Because God had placed a holy discontent that it wasn't okay for her to be okay in the palace and to live in some glory while her nation was eradicated. Or you think about Moses. I love Moses. He's so impulsive. In, in, in the worst possible way, he's impulsive. He's got this holy discontent that the way the Israelites are being treated is awful. So what does he do? In his own strength, he goes and he kills an Egyptian. That's how passionate he is about his cause. He kills a dude who's beating up one of the Israelis. And then God has to take him for 40 years into the desert to train him and prepare him. Isn't it incredible that for 40 years he's in the desert? And then how long are the Israelites in the desert? 40 years. What do you think Moses is learning? How to survive in the desert. How to get around in the desert. How to navigate in the desert. Remember, God is preparing us perfectly for the plans and purposes that he has for us, including where we were born, what color we were born, the economic status we were born into, the things you like, the things you don't like, the things your your body naturally is good at. You might be athletic. God put that in you. You might be beautiful. You might be ugly. God put that in you. Isn't that incredible? I get no testify from Siggy on that one, eh? (laughs) Think about all the judges of Israel. What happens every time there's a holy discontent that gets stirred in their hearts? I can't stand it no more. They can't take it anymore. And God raises up Samson and um, uh, Delilah. (laughs) Samson and Deborah is who I'm thinking of. He, He raises up men and women to lead his people. Well, you can think about sinners, inverted commas sinners. Think about that, that, that little man, Zacchaeus, who climbs a tree, just one glimpse of Jesus. And he can't see him because he's like three foot five. So he climbs up that tree to look at Jesus. And lo and behold, Jesus stops in his grace. He stops underneath that tree and says, Zacchaeus, you come down. Come down here. I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your house today. And in that encounter, Zacchaeus is so stirred in his heart and he has this holy discontent which begins and he realizes that he has to give away his money. Half of his money he gives away. Half of it. Just think about that. Go home today, pace out your house, take half of your house and give it that away. So that's the part we're going to give away and we're going to live on this side. Take your clothes and half, take your bank balance, take your investments. It's radical. But Zacchaeus has a holy discontent that Jesus' visit begins to bubble in his heart. I think of the woman at the well, the incredible story of the Samaritan woman who comes to Jesus, and Jesus again, so full of grace and insight, says to her, not even the man, the man you're living with is not even your husband. You've been married multiple times before, and he, he uses that as a key to unlock her heart, and suddenly she realizes who she's with. And Jesus begins to tell her about her life and then brings redemption to her. Not just you bad, you bad, you bad, you did this, you did this. I'll give you living water that you'll never thirst again. And what is she? She's not content to just leave it to herself. She's not content to go back and so grateful that Jesus has saved her and she's now okay. 
she goes and begins to tell that whole town. They can't make her shut up. She just goes and tells them and tells them, you've got to come meet this man, Jesus. You've got to come and see Jesus. He told me everything there was to know about my life. He told me everything. And we see this discontentment, this holy discontentment that works out in so many ways because God is the master of the Popeye moment. He's the master. That's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. And we're going to... We're going to speak about that more in the coming weeks, but I want to finish. And I want to finish off by just thinking about what was God's, what is God's primary discontent? What's God's primary holy discontent? It was that He was separated from His people. That through our sin, He couldn't dwell with us, couldn't visit us in the garden like He did with Adam and Eve. And then God, in His holy discontent, did something. He did something, and that something was Jesus. He gave us Jesus. Listen, I love this text. We studied it last year when we were going through the book of Philippians. But Philippians 2 so perfectly sums up almost all of the aspects of the gospel. Have this mind among yourself, Paul encourages the Philippians which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't say, well, I'm God, so I'm going to use that as an excuse not to get involved. No, he took his godness and he put it aside. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul, it's going to be costly if I follow my holy discontent. If God places something in my life and I want to chase after that thing, you don't understand what it's going to cost me in my family reputation. You don't understand what wealth means in my family. You don't understand how tight my time is. And we bring all our excuses. And then we come to Philippians 2 and we see great God's great discontent that He could not live without His people. He wanted us to dwell and be with His people. And he gives himself to death. And you remember the words of Jesus. If a man would follow me, he must give up his job. He must give up his bank balance. He must give up his diary. He must give up his life. Be willing to give it all. God says, hey, I know you studied for seven years. I want you to leave that. I want you to do this. Are we okay to say, take a moment, take another moment. Maybe it's a journey. We get people around us, but to say ultimately, yes, God, yes. And so many different scenarios that might not be that dramatic, just small moments in our lives where God says, I want you to do that. I had one the other day that was highly embarrassing. I got it completely wrong. But you know what? I'm so grateful I listened. I'm so grateful. Just when the Holy Spirit prompts you as you're walking around and you see someone and you just feel them say, that person needs prayer. That person needs someone to go and say, whatever it might be. Isn't that the worst, like the scary moment? You know, I walked right past, honestly. It's pastor's confession. I walked right past. And then I, I just wouldn't leave me. And I turn around. And I'm like, oh man, you're going to make such a fool. Oh, you're going to make a fool of yourself. Oh, I know. 
hey, how are you? I just want to, I want to ask you a question. I'll ask my question. No, not at all. All right then. <laughs> Have a great day. <laughs> I'm just going to. Man, but in the light of Jesus coming, this, the, the most incredible incarnation rids himself of, it's not the right word, doesn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, empties himself to the point of death. Man, I can cope with many of those moments. Father, whatever you want to call me to. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I love thinking about that. The great culminating day. It's not now. That verse is not about right now. Every knee does not bow. Every tongue does not confess. But one day they will. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God and the Father and the Holy Spirit cared so much about this holy discontent. It burned so deeply inside of them that they didn't care if it was misunderstood or mocked or ridiculed and even put to death. I love this other text in 1 Corinthians 1. One of my favorite texts. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So the Jews were constantly saying, where's the power? Where's the power? Show us the power of this Messiah. And the Greeks were constantly saying, give us reason. We're reasonable people. We like to, you know, very much like a certain town we might live in, right? Tell me, explain it again. Give me some reasonable explanation. Let me understand. This was the Greeks. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. What? The Messiah is dead, but we want power. That's not very powerful. That's not powerful. And the Greeks mock and they scorn. What kind of Messiah is that? That doesn't make any reasonable sense. And I'm a reasonable man. What kind of sense does that make? But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, both those who seek the power and those who seek the reason, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Isn't it beautiful? How God had this holy discontent to be with His people and sends Jesus and gets mocked for it and gets scorned for it and still today gets slandered. How can you believe that dribble? Don't you have a mind? Did they make you check it out at the door? Powerless. Unreasonable. The power of God. Alive. And active in us, calling us right back to where we started, Ephesians 2. Saved by grace for good works. Created for good works. You were created for good works. People, one hope. You were not simply created to get a ticket stamp to heaven for salvation. Yes, praise God and continue to praise God. But that is not where it stops. You were created, and I'm quoting from Ephesians, for good works prepared in advance for you to do. 
are we? By the power of the Holy Spirit, are we seeing this in our lives? Maybe you've been saved 50 years. Maybe you've been saved 10 years. Maybe you've been saved just for two weeks. Maybe you consider yourself the quintessential sinner or the quintessential saint. One of those two things. Maybe you consider yourself one of those things. But I know that God can stir holy discontent in every heart. 50 years you've been saved. God wants to stir you. Two weeks God wants to stir you and call you. Will we listen? Will we position ourselves like Nehemiah in prayer and fasting? God wants to work in us. We're going to talk more about that next week. I'm going to close in prayer. There's a coffee machine outside. Thank you, Luke Simmons. God bless you for the good works you are doing (laughs) in our midst. And there's also free coffee and teas and drinks and all of that. And then there's a guest table to my left. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your word which challenges us in our complacency when we feel so comfortable and we feel so happy. God, I want to thank you that you come and you replace happiness with deep joy that doesn't just get based on circumstances and things going on around us, God, but that allows us to do radical, crazy, unreasonable, weak things. And yet at the same moment to experience the most wonderful joy knowing that we wouldn't walk in any other thing than what you have purposed and planned for us. Lord, in this room are some who don't trust you at all. They don't think you're good. They don't think you're a good father. And I want to ask you, God, that you would break in on their lives and show them that you are incredible, incredibly good, incredibly trustworthy, that we can trust you with our futures. We can trust you with our careers. We can trust you with the country we stay in, God. Father, that we would respond to you, not out of some human effort and striving and seeing things and trying to fix them like Mr. What's his name? The, the fixer guy. Bob the builder. Not like him, God. It's our own strength going and fixing everything we can. But as we get empowered and the Holy Spirit breathes upon us and opens our eyes like he did to Nehemiah and we have this holy discontent moment, Lord, would we allow it to work deep into our hearts? Would what grieves you grieve us, Lord? As individuals and as a church, God, would we not be found in years to come, people looking back and say, how could you have lived through that and felt none of the grief that was very obviously on God's heart? Lord, we appeal to you to do the work in us. In the wonderful name of Jesus. And I want to encourage you, some of you need to have conversations with other people sitting here this morning family members, things that God has stirred on your heart which are sitting dormant and dead, but you know, but you know that God put them in your heart. Take the first step, have a conversation. Hey, I think maybe God said this to me and I have never done it. Or I think maybe God is calling me to this. Maybe you're on the, on the early curve. But I want to encourage us, church. I want to encourage us with these words from Nehemiah. God has called us, prepared things for us to do. Let Him stir our hearts. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you out there.